Hello and welcome to episode number 34 of Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I speak with Christy Cooper, the director of an eye-opening documentary called Youth v. Gov. Christy grew up in Boulder, Colorado, surrounded by people who helped her develop a strong connection to nature and the outdoors. Her passion for science resulted in an MS degree in microbiology from Colorado State University. She went on to obtain her PhD in neuroscience. After spending years in research, she followed her dream of documentary filmmaking by pursuing an MFA in the Science and Nature Filmmaking Program at Montana State University. Her latest film, Youth v. Gov, tells the story of 21 young Americans taking on the world's most powerful government in a revolutionary lawsuit that claims that for more than six decades, U.S. presidential administrations of both parties have continued to actively abuse their most vulnerable citizens by willingly contributing to the climate crisis. Here's the trailer. For a lot of young people right now, life is really scary because we've never seen a moment like this in history. And our feelings about our life and our future is all because of choices that we had no participation in. And so the plaintiffs joined this case because we all know who's to blame and, and what needs to be done. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs. Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share. And now on to my conversation with Christy Cooper. Hello, Christy Cooper. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for making the time to chat with us. Christy Cooper is the producer, writer, and director of a film called Youth v. Gov, uh, which, among many other film festivals, uh, will be playing at the Woods Hole Film Festival July 31st to uh, August the 7th. I will make sure that in the program notes for this episode, we actually have the uh, exact showing time for uh, Youth v. Gov. Um, So, Christy... Give us the synopsis of what the film is about. Sure. So Youth v. Gov is the story of 21 young people from across the United States, from a very diverse and representative group, um, who sued the U.S. government in 2015 for violating their constitutional rights to life, liberty, property, and personal security. And the story follows their journey through this landmark constitutional lawsuit, as well as digs, you know, we have an investigative journalism side to the story where we go back 60 years and uncover evidence of what the government has known about the impacts of of greenhouse gases and decisions that they made that locked us into a fossil fuel-based energy system. And um, 
Yeah, and it's a story of a of a case that is that is still ongoing. How did this story uh, come on your radar? I started working with some of these young people in 2011, so 10 years ago. Um, Shitescott Martinez, who is the the Aztec plaintiff from Boulder, Colorado. Kelsey Juliana, who's now the lead plaintiff in this case, and Jamie Lynn Butler from the Navajo Reservation. They were all plaintiffs in state lawsuits in 2011. So Julia Olson, who um, is the executive director of Our Children's Trust and is the lead counsel on this case, she she founded her organization in 2010 and in 2011 filed legal actions in every state across the country. Mm -hmm. And I came in as a partner with WITNESS, which is a social justice human rights organization, um, Peter Gabriel's organization. And we did a series of 10 short films on these plaintiffs that were used as part of a grassroots campaign. So that was kind of my introduction. First time I'd ever worked with young people on, on camera and was definitely my introduction to climate litigation and environmental law and, you know, trying to learn so much of um, the jargon and the understanding of the public trust doctrine and how so many of these aspects were, were being, um, you know, used in these cases. And then in 2015, when Julia filed this new case um, with these plaintiffs, I, I had already had these well-established relationships with, you know, these three plaintiffs and their families, um, as well as, good contact with the legal team and with Julia. So I kind of had a, I was very lucky. It was, I was very fortunate to have already, you know, been kind of steeped in this story and knew a lot of the characters. And so I was able to jump on it at the moment in 2016, when judge Coffin ruled in their favor. For me, that was a really pivotal moment in understanding that, okay, this, like there's a judge here who believes that this case um, has merits and mm -hmm. believes that these plaintiffs have standing. And so I, I think that it's going to go somewhere. And mm -hmm. that was the moment that I approached Julia and said, will you give me exclusive access <laughs> to tell this story? And yeah, will you give me, you know, the, um, the opportunity to do this? And that's yeah, and I would say access, access is the key word because in watching the film, it seems like uh, you had you, you had uh, quite a bit of access. I and mean, there's, there's a lot of such compelling footage of not only the legal team and, it, it, you know, it's really fa it was fascinating. I thought the legal team and the uh, the brain power at work within the legal team sort of anticipating what uh, the government being the defendant, what 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 tactics they were going to use, but also just the way you cut in all of the the youth, the the plaintiffs and mm -hmm. what their motivation was and how very real to their day to day existence, if not today in the very, in, you know, in the very near future. How did you wrap your head around as a filmmaker? And I want to talk about your journey as a filmmaker in just a bit. But how did you wrap around your head around as a filmmaker, knowing that you wanted to put together? It's almost a there's a bit of a whodunit quality to the film. Like, how did we get here? How did you keep all those plates spinning? Yeah, that was probably one of the most challenging things about telling this story. Um, over the course of the five years of filming <clears throat> with these characters, with the youth, I, you know, I knew that the youth were the heart of the story. I knew that their stories were really, that's why this case exists. That's why this uh, case is, is monumental. And so I knew that 
that weaving their stories in was going to be really critical to the story. Otherwise it was, it would just be a boring, you know, legal story in a courtroom Mm -hmm. with not a lot of heart. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that was like storyline one storyline two was definitely following the red thread of the case and all of the twists and turns, none of which I was able to predict or had any, you know, control over a schedule or (laughs) anything like that. Um, so just really trying to stay on my toes with what was happening and, um, a lot of miles on my car between Bozeman and Eugene, um, to always get updates on where the case was and what was happening. And then there was the third element to the story, which was the the historical piece. And the historical piece was really almost like a whole nother film project of its own. It was a year and a half of very deep research by my co-producer Liz Smith and I, we dug really deep into, you know, books and articles and archives and interviews with, um, with, you know, um, previous scientists who worked in within the government and, and government officials. And, and then when it came to, you know, putting all these pieces together, and even when I was fundraising for the film, when I would present this to funders, it was always like, well, you're trying to make, this is three films. Like, how are you going to ever weave this together? You've got three films in one. Like, why don't you just follow the youth? Why don't you just follow the, you know? And I was like, no, this is what I want to do. Like these right. are the three elements to the story and I've got to find a way to, to weave them together. So when yeah, we actually got... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think that's super effective because what it what it does, it it's each of the each of the approaches are constantly reinforcing the other. Like Mm -hmm. the the historical context uh, is allowing the viewer to see that even a let's let's call them well-intended politician will bend or historically has been bending under the pressure of industry. Uh, and, you know, ec- economic influences, but also that the decisions made at a policy level do come to impact at the local level. And in many and in several of these instances, as it's at the local level within communities that are oftentimes not even thought about. They, they can mm-hmm. be rendered invisible, uh, you know, by virtue of uh, well, you know, who's going to be who's going to be downstream from that from that uh, factory or, you know, what what community sacrifice zones. is that what they referred to as? Yeah, sacrifice wow, zones. that's pretty scary. So there's an element of there's almost a Pentagon Papers element to the film uh, where the insiders kind of reveal everything that that they've known for a long time. And that one individual who just has those hordes of records going back decades. So you taking those three approaches, I can imagine it being a tough sell to funders, mm-hmm. you know, to sort of convince them you are going to be able to weave it. But it really goes a long way toward strengthening the film uh, and appealing to what I would say would be the head and the heart. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear that the, you know, when we, when we sat down to actually get into the post-production process and start editing the film together, I had over 200 hours of original content that I had shot with my team. And then we had like several hundred hours of archival footage and, you know, trying to weave this together. And I had two editors, two amazing editors, Tony Hale and Lyman Smith, who worked on this project with me. And I had a fellowship at the Jacob Burns Film Center um, that kind of launched our post-production process. And when we sat down and we started kind of weaving this together, we came up, we, we, you know, we kind of realized that the way that we were trying to tell the story of weaving these three elements together was very much in line 
with the three elements of standing and how how the attorneys are approaching the case, right? So you have to, in, in, in order to, to file a, a lawsuit, you have to first prove that you have standing and there's elements of standing that you have to pass in a court of law. The first one being that you prove that you've been harmed. Right. The second one is proving that the defendant has harmed you. And the third one is proving that the court can provide a redress or, or a relief for you that you're seeking. And so that's how we built out the story. We built out the first act is about the harm. The second act is about the whodunit aspect of, you know, really understanding that this was the government's responsibility. And the, the third act is, is digging into how the courts can provide that solution. Right. And once we figured that out, then it was so much easier to weave back and forth between the plaintiff stories and the historical aspects and everything was, was supposed to drive the case forward. So that, that was kind of the, the motivation behind that. Did it ever feel for the very reason that the youths were the plaintiffs that they weren't taken seriously as, as perhaps as seriously as another class action suit would have been taken. Because I, I would imagine or presume that in some people's minds, they could see something like youth versus government and say, well, you know, when these kids grow up and they see how the real the real world works, um, then they'll put away these concerns. You know, you got to make a buck. I think they continue to be marginalized in that sense of their, their voice, you know, not being, you know, I think there's a lot of adults, unfortunately, who dismiss the young people and either because they haven't had their full life experiences or because they make the assumption that they don't know enough or because they think that they've been putting, they're being put up to this by, you know, their parents or, um, that there's some like, um, you know, left liberal agenda here at play. Um, but what was really interesting in working with these young people for me was understanding how wrong that assumption is and how unbelievably, um, you know, diminishing that attitude is towards young people that I think we've had for many generations of mm -hmm. just always assuming that young people don't know what they're talking about. And these young people today, they're experiencing life and their experience in their future in a very different way than you and I did. When I was growing up, when I was their age, I wasn't worried about what my whether or not there was going to be a habitable future, whether or not the job that I decided to, you know, to pursue or the career that I decided to pursue, you know, whether or not there was going to be, you know, heat waves and droughts and wildfires and all of these things that these young people really understand. And they have a, a really you know, good grasp of understanding that this is going to impact their future and they're scared. And many of them feel, you know, almost it's, it's almost a little bit debilitating and kind of feeling like, do, does it even make sense for me to go to school and to study and to pursue a career if I'm not mm -hmm. even going to have a future? And those are real fears. That's what the scientists are telling us. And they're right. listening to the scientists. So uh, yes, they had, they, they definitely have experienced that from people. I'm hoping that that has been changing. I feel like in the last five years, we're really seeing young people getting a seat at the table. I mean, even the Biden administration, the Biden administration is the first administration ever to appoint a young person 18 years old to the, to the administration. Really? In so this, what position? Yeah. I'm not aware. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Jerome Foster, and he's an environmental justice leader, um, climate change activist, and he has a position in the white house. Wow. And 
and you know, I think that I think that we're finally understanding, and I think Greta, you know, contributed a lot to that of people listening to the youth voice. They come at it with an innocence in a way that doesn't doesn't minimize their effectiveness, but it's an innocence that I think um, they they don't come into the situation with all of these political blinders, and they're not seeing all the shades of gray. They really see this as a justice issue. It's very black and white for them. It's about their future. It's about equality. It's about justice. And they see that there's ways to have to find solutions that still provide economic security for for folks and and provide solutions. Something that comes across uh, really vividly in the film um, along those lines to really give evidence to the fact that the youth aren't just sort of uh, props for somebody else's agenda uh, is the way they hold up uh, in their congressional testimony and in the depositions Mm. there's, and I would say particularly in the depositions where they're being asked this litany of sort of hypothetical questions and in, in several, and at least in what I'm seeing in the film, they're pretty unfazed. And in a couple of instances, uh, the uh, the kids who are being questioned, being deposed, they kind of laugh and just say, you know, that's a ridiculous question. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, and Julia, uh, their attorney points that out also. Yeah, the depositions were just I mean, they were hard for us to cut together. It was hours and hours. Kelsey's deposition was two days long. Wow. Yeah, it was it was really hard to watch and listen to, you know, the government and the DOJ like they're their government. Right. Their government who's supposed to be protecting them and securing their rights is the questions and the attitude that they took towards towards the plaintiffs was really discouraging. Sure. Um, but yeah, the plaintiffs were, I mean, they clearly understand that they're not the, they're not, they're not, they're not the scientific experts. That's not why they're the plaintiffs in this case. That's not their role, right? Their role is, is they're in this case because they each have independent harms right? and their role is not to be the scientific climate change expert. And so the, you know, the DA, the DOJ really tried to pin them down with a lot of these questions, which were just ridiculous. I mean, especially like the J- Jacob question, you know, have you ever gone back in civilization and measured, you know, the impacts of greenhouse gases? Like what a ridiculous question. Where are you even going with this? Yes, exactly. And, and you know, there was another there was another uh, element that I thought was really great that you included that one of the kids, they're having a conversation with their father. And their father is is thoughtful and intelligent, but super skeptical. And and I thought the the father was actually a really good uh, representative of probably a lot of the benign pushback that these kids would encounter. And, and it, and I think it came across as uh, such a great example of, okay, this is a complex problem. You're going to encounter opposition, but work through that, uh, you know, address it with, with the, with the resources that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin and Vic's relationship was really interesting. Um, for those who haven't seen the film yet, uh, Vic is a plaintiff from New York, is a young black kid, trans, and his father is, is a black Republican Muslim man and does not believe in climate change. <laughs> and so it just sets up like right away this huge um, 
not huge conflict, but definitely a barrier. And it's been, I think it's been a source of pain for Vic, you know, that his father has not supported him in this, has not really been very engaged in what he's been doing. And yeah, it was really interesting to hear. I mean, Kevin is a journalist. He's a very intelligent man. And they they both were also able to have this conversation with a lot of empathy and patience with each other, which um, which was really interesting. And at the end of the day, Kevin, you know, was willing to say, I, can you teach me more? Like, yes. I, I, I'm willing, I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. And I'd like to learn more about this. Right. And, and if nothing else, that is such a positive step in the right direction. Yeah. As I was watching the film, I was thinking, you know, obviously it's called youth versus government because that's, you know, that's that that's its legal designation. But it could also be called youth versus status quo. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And and, you know, the when you start messing with the status quo, you're going to start getting a lot of pushback. No joke. There's so much pushback on in, in every angle from also from attorneys and from the legal from the legal world. You know, just so much pushback around this case and people not believing that it ever would have gone this far. But the funny thing is, is that there's not this kind of pushback on in, in other realms, whether it's voting rights issues or marriage equality or um, civil rights issues. You know, no one's telling people don't don't file these cases and don't don't go up to the Supreme Court because you might lose. It's like, what, how how else are you ever supposed to to create change on these issues if you if you don't? try these tactics. Do you think the magnitude of the pushback is because to adequately address the climate issues that the systemic change would would just be so uh, enormous? I think that's part of it. I think we as as Americans have been taught that this, you know, I think it's been in in like ingrained in our minds and in our society and in our culture that we, the shift is too big. It's mm-hmm. too, it's too difficult. And, but that's not true. I mean, that's, that's definitely the message that the fossil fuel industry wants us all to understand um, because they, they are the ones who, ha- who have the most to lose and, you know, probably are, have the biggest stake in this game. Um, there's a lot of there's been pushback from the very beginning from the fossil fuel industry when they when they intervened in the case and were sitting at the table with the government defending this case. And they were the ones who were who were filing all of these motions. They filed the original motion to dismiss. It wasn't the Obama administration. Right. Um, so I think that there is a big fear um, amongst a lot of big money and corporation mm-hmm. that that this. Yes, this is a systemic um change that needs to happen. But, you know, many people believe that that it's a that it's economically viable and feasible and actually will be much better for our country and for the world, um, much more equity and, and justice and um, economic stability if we actually make this change. But there's people, you know, there's deep pockets that are very threatened mm-hmm. by that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it takes anything away from enticing people to see the film uh, because it's 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 so well made and, and such a compelling story. But to kind of bring people up to speed, the film uh, concludes um, on the note where the ninth the Ninth Circuit Court decides that the plaintiffs did suffer harm mm-hmm. caused by the defendants being the government. But if I understood correctly, the courts ruled in a in a two to one decision that the court 
was not in a position to address that harm. Is Am I getting that correct? You got that perfect. Yeah, that's um, that's exactly what happened. Judge Staten was the dissenting opinion in that. And she wrote a beautiful, beautiful um, dissent. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they basically, the, the Ninth Circuit Court got hung up in the injunctive relief that the plaintiffs were seeking, which was that the court's mandate um, that the government implement climate recovery plans. And like you said, they agreed with everything else, um, but but that's what they got hung up on. So what the plaintiffs have done now is in March, they filed a motion to amend their complaint, which is very common in lawsuits. It's often done um, to kind of align the complaint um, more directly with where the courts stand. So the the plaintiffs are are asking Judge Aiken in the district court if they can amend their complaint to be more focused on the declaratory relief aspect of their case, Mm -hmm. which is very similar to Brown versus Board of Education, where the, the young people in that case were simply asking the courts to declare that they had constitutional rights and that those rights were being violated. It wasn't until 19, that was in 1954 that that decision was made. It wasn't until 1955 that the courts actually implemented or mandated the desegregation. But the very first component was providing declaratory relief. And so the Juliana plaintiffs now are asking the courts to to simply provide that declaratory relief because that in and of itself tells the government you can't do this. Right. That's it's stating the law and it's stating that that law is being broken. And And is there any way to anticipate when a a decision um, on that request would be coming forth? Yeah. So Judge Aiken, just uh, maybe two and a half weeks ago, three and three weeks ago, had a conference call with the plaintiffs and the DOJ to set an oral argument hearing to discuss this amending the complaint. Got it. And she set a date for June 25th. So it's, it's just around the corner. Just around the Um, corner. We're recording on flag day, June 14th. (laughs) Um, But she also ordered the DOJ attorneys to come to the settlement table with the plaintiffs prior to the June 25th hearing. So she's ordering the government to, to start settlement discussions, mm-hmm. whether or not the government will actually go along with that and will come, you know, come to the table with that in mind and will actually want to, you know, to settle that. That's another question. Like they have every right to, to come and say, sorry, we're not going to settle. But judge Aikens for the first time ordering that they actually consider this and that they start these, these negotiations, which is really important because this, uh, this could provide the Biden administration an opportunity to seal the deal on his climate legacy. If it's a, if there's a court supported resolution that comes out of this case, that resolution could be stronger and 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 would not be able to be undone by a subsequent administration, either by executive orders or legislative action. So it's a really great opportunity. If Biden, if the Biden administration is actually really serious about his climate agenda, this is a way that he can that he can address that. And then what happened last week, which is even more crazy, is that 17 Republican states filed a motion to intervene in the case. <laughs> so it's just it's just crazy. I mean, this case couldn't, for those who watch the movie, you know, you'll really appreciate the ups and downs that these plaintiffs have gone through. I, 
I don't know that there's any other constitutional case that's had this this many ups and downs throughout throughout its story. But now we have these 17 states that are now wanting to join in the case and they're wanting a seat at the settlement table so that they can not settle. Right. Um, so that's also going to be, we don't know whether Judge Aiken's going to allow them to intervene. This is mm-hmm. all super new stuff. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see how she responds. It's going to be very interesting to see how the Biden administration responds to this request. Does he want us, does he want to, you know, stand on the same side and fight that same fight with these um, 17 Republican AGs who are pushing all kinds of other ultra conservative um, agendas down the line, or, or does he want to stand with the youth and fight for a sustainable future? That's the fight is ongoing. Yeah. That number 17 Republican attorneys general reminds me of, I think it was 17 that signed on to that lawsuit that the Texas attorney general had cooked up around the election. It's the same group. That's the same group. I'm I'm sensing a trend. There is an agenda. Yeah, there is. Your your ease and fluidity with which you use legal terms. um, Where is that today compared to when you started the film? You must feel like you went to law school. I do. do, Actually, 10 years of being steeped in this. Um, There was actually a point when I was making this film that I said to Julie, I think I need to go to law school. And she's like, no, you need to tell the story of this. Not, you know, like there's enough lawyers out there, but we need more storytellers telling these stories. Well, speaking of schooling, you've got a lot. You've already been to school quite a bit. So uh, you've got a Ph.D. in neuroscience. That's right. Neuroscientist turned documentary filmmaker. Tell me that story. So I got my PhD in Germany, um, was doing stem cell research for 16 years, um, basic clinical, preclinical research. Um, and I was working in Germany and in Sweden. And the, the focus of my work was, was on stem cells and neurodegenerative diseases. And towards the, like the latter half of my scientific career, it became really apparent that there was a need for greater public awareness and understanding of science. And I think we've seen, we've even seen this now with COVID. I mean, that's like totally brought that to, you know, to the forefront of people just having very little understanding around basic scientific topics. And my, my interest in science communication really stems back to the, the Carrie Bush election when stem cells became the hot button debate. Mm-hmm. So I was working in Germany at the time and it was, it was very, you know, disheartening to see how a scientific topic that very few people really understood became a, an issue that they were voting on and it steered our elections and it resulted in funding being withdrawn from the NSF and from, from various scientific programs. And so that was kind of like the, maybe the impetus for me and in feeling like it was really imperative to talk about the science, talk about what we were doing, you know, have conversations in a layman's perspective where people could really understand what we were doing and why are the use of stem cells was important and where they're coming from. Um, so that was, that was kind of the, the, the initial, I guess, topic, I guess that piqued my interest in that. And then I became part of a EU um, interdisciplinary grant where we were creating science uh, traveling fairs around the EU. And that was really fun getting to actually talk with, you know, just the general public about these scientific issues. 
And then I started to want to dig a little bit deeper into this. And my grandfather and uncle are both filmmakers in Germany. And so I kind of had grown up a little bit with the arts in, uh, in, sure. in my family and in my yeah. background, but I had pigeonholed myself as a scientist. Um, but then I found this program in Montana at Montana State University. It's an MFA in science and natural history filmmaking. And they specifically were wanting to train folks who had graduate degrees in the natural science to train them how to direct and produce science content or wildlife content, not natural, natural history content. Sure. So I, I came out and checked out the program. And as a Colorado native, I immediately fell in love with the Northern Rockies up here. Um, so you're in, but you're in Bozeman right now, as we speak. I'm in Bozeman. Right. Yeah. I ended up moving out here in 2009, got my MFA in science and natural history filmmaking and, I really thought my journey was going to be science storytelling. I thought, you know, I thought that's where, where I was headed, but very early in the program, I, I realized that my heart, like my, that part of me was always more drawn to these social justice issues and to mm -hmm. environmental justice issues. Mm -hmm. And I went down in 2010 when the BP um, Deepwater Horizon disaster happened. My friend Devin Ryder and I packed up our car with all of our film gear, drove down to Louisiana and connected with scientists on the ground. That's how we were trying to, to make a difference is like, right. let us help tell the story down here. Right. And what happened is that we met a captain of a boat who had just lost his job because of the oil. And he was an Takapa Ishak, which is one of the tribes down in Southern Louisiana, Southwest Louisiana. And they invited us into their home and we ended up living with them for three weeks and learning their story of how, you know, the fossil fuel industry has basically decimated their culture and their lives. They, they live outside of the levee system in the marshes, 10, over 10,000 miles of pipelines inundate where they live now. Um, and so that was like my first, I think that was that kind of sealed the deal for me. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, these are the stories. Like I, these are the stories that I want to tell. These are the stories that I want to, you know, collaborate with these people on the ground and help them get their stories out. It's such a potent combination, I think, of disciplines and mindsets. You know, you've got the, the <laughs> rigor of someone who is steeped in the scientific method and you've got the vision and the artistry uh, of a filmmaker and a storyteller. And you in particular gravitated toward uh, cinematography. I did. <laughs> Had you always been a photographer or in fact, you shot much of the uh, youth versus gov film. Mm -hmm. I, yes, I was very into photography before I started the film program um, and definitely found, I like the technical things. I like, mm -hmm. I like working with the gear and I, you know, I like, I like all of the aspects of the camera and being able, it, it also provides a lot of independence of being able to pick up a camera and go out and, you know, capture what you need to capture. And that felt, that felt not only um, practical to me, but it was also quite fulfilling. Sure. So yeah, I've worked as a, as a camera person on a lot of other people's films and, and projects. Um, definitely for the first, you know, three and a half years was doing uh, the vast majority of the, of the filmmaking or the, you know, the, the cinematography on this. But then when I finally had funding, I was able to step back out of that role, be a director and actually hire um, DPs to come on board as well, who were just also amazing to work with and, and really helped me um, to capture some pivotal moments. So what's the status with the film right now? I know it's, it, it has been sh uh, sh 
presented at several film festivals. And as I mentioned earlier, it it will be at the Woods Hole Film Festival later in the summer. Are you seeking distribution? Do you have distribution? What's what's the plan, um, particularly uh, to do whatever you can to make sure that that young audiences get to experience this? Yeah, it's a great question. So we premiered in November um, of 2020 at, at um, DACA NYC, and we've been in the film festival circuit since then. Mm-hmm. Um, very honored to have a great film cycle so far. We do not yet have commercial distribution, which has been um, a bit disappointing and frustrating um, to say the least, but we are still working hard at that. Um, Endeavor Content is our sales agent. And um, so for any commercial distributors uh, listening out there, yeah. um, we're definitely you know interested in working with someone to get this film out there. We feel that it's a very potent, compelling message that is... Um, you know, is of the time. Um, and, you know, having said that not having commercial distribution yet is also kind of allowing us to kind of refocus our calendar a little bit and, and, and try to figure out, well, how do we get the film into the hands of the people that need it most right now? So we've decided to go ahead and kind of like move things on the distribution calendar a little bit and launch our educational distribution and community screening distribution. So we are hoping to to be able to launch that within the next month or so um, so that when the fall comes, the film can be readily available for schools. Definitely a big priority is to get this into as many schools as possible, as, as affordable as possible. We also want to get this into as many law schools and into their libraries as possible for, you know, new attorneys or new aspiring attorneys to understand the links between environmental justice and constitutional rights and not, not just for environmental attorneys, but also for constitutional attorneys to this is our this case is already being taught at Columbia Law School and law schools around the country. So wow. we feel that there's going to be an interest for this amongst that group. Yeah. And where, you know, people can go to our website and they can um, sign up for screenings. They just need to fill out a form and, and make that request for us. And, and, and give us that we'll URL, please. Yeah, that's youthbgovfilm.com. Okay. And on there are various buttons where they can request a screening, um, goes to a form that they can fill out. We're also um, getting ready. We have been kind of already working a little bit in our impact campaign realm, but we're getting ready to um, hire some impact producers and to get that aspect um, of the campaign up and up and running. And that's really going to be focused on working with communities and in particular young people around the country to hold their governments accountable when it comes to the climate crisis. So whether that can even be local work, you know, it can be mm-hmm. when, we, when we talk about government, that can be elected officials, school board, local representatives, city commissioners, et cetera. But there's so many ways that young people can plug into work that's already being done on the ground. And we hope that this film can kind of serve as a as a tool, provide people with some new language and a new understanding of kind of understanding why we're in this predicament and and perhaps where we need to go from here. Well, it's it's such a uh, compelling and informative and um, inspirational film. And I really do hope it gets the audience that it deserves. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with us. This has been great. Uh, And like I said, I I look forward to seeing where the film goes and uh, also in following the case. Thanks, Michael. It's just been a joy to talk with you about the film. And I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. 